you grow up with a lack of parental supervision? Do you know all the lyrics to The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Remember Merrimick Cheese and the Fry Guys? Have an inexplicable love for the California Raisins? Can you remember Madonna's original face? Then you might be a part of the Doom Generation. Laugh until you cry with us each week as we stumble blindly through the memories of the movie and other random things that doomed us to be the salty, sarcastic, sardonic ladies we want to hang with. You know us. You love us. You can't f***ing live without us. Doom, Doom Generation. Generation. Available everywhere you find podcasts. Try to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? My duplicate car. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> The Cult-Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, will guide you weekly through a sea of hidden gems and obscure films that are destined for rediscovery. And so, without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio. This is The Cult-Worthy Classic. And today I got a very special guest returning to the show. He was on, I think, episode five, one of the very first episodes we did on the show. My friend Shane of the Shane and I podcast returning to the program. Shane, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Great. Great having you back. Episode like 31 now. We are just cranking these out. I can't believe it's been yeah, you, half a year. Yeah, you've been going with this one. I like it. I like it. There's really some obscure films that you do, and it's really cool. And, you know, I've had a bunch of new guests on lately and reaching out to new people. And I also don't forget those that got me here. So I've been going back to like the first 10 guests and getting them back on the show just to see how far we've progressed, both your shows and my show. I, I feel yeah. in the last six months have done a lot of great things. Yeah, yeah, it's been crazy. We've been we've been getting some we've been getting some good responses on the last few episodes we've done. So I'm I'm pretty happy with it. Absolutely. Now on the last episode that you were on, we talked about Twisted Nerve, starring uh Haley Mills and Highwell Bennett. And we both liked that one. We both talked about how it was a very serious psychological thriller, kind of like a Hitchcockian thing, proto slasher with all the gore but with like a serious undertone and message, nothing goofy, nothing campy. We decided right. to do something different with this one, didn't we? Yeah, <laughs> totally out of left field on this one. This one was bonkers, man. <laughs> and you said and, when you sent it to me, it was bonkers, and sure enough. Yeah, <laughs> we need a little bonkers, because I've been going back and I've looking and listening to the back catalog, and there's just a lot of dramas. There's a lot of film noir, there's some spaghetti westerns in there, but I really didn't have any campy cult classics from pre-1970. And if you're going to talk yeah. about campy, if you're going to talk about cult, if you're going to talk about classics of this genre, you've got to talk about Herschel Gordon Lewis and his proto-gore films, most specifically the one we're talking about today, 2000 Maniacs. You're all invited to a centennial celebration. What they were celebrating wasn't important. And it sounded like a heap of fun until 2,000 maniacs crazed for carnage started bathing an entire town in pulsing human blood. 
you'll see six young strangers doomed to slaughter by an ancient curse. And from his lips there came an awful sound. Brutal, evil, ghastly beyond belief. You'll see the most diabolical device ever contrived, designed solely for assassination by a town of madmen, insane with bloodlust. Yeah, I didn't know much about the, about uh, the director. Uh, I looked him up on Wikipedia, and it turns out like he did a lot of a lot of gore movies in the '60s or whatever. But uh, yeah, this one was. This one was again ahead of its time. I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, from watching it, it was it was pretty ahead of its time as far as like gore and the the way they did the movie. It was just pretty ahead of its time. Well, it's so guerrilla filmmaking. It's so independent. Like this guy wrote, yeah. directed, shot, did all the staging, did all the lighting. Like he did everything. When we talk about like independent cinema now. I would say that he was like the Robert Rodriguez of the 1960s. Like, do it all yourself, do it all cheap, and just try and get enough people to spread the word that it is something special and worth watching. Yeah, it kind of had that feel to it. Like, like it had a feel to it. The way it was shot was that it was like, it almost felt a lot realer. Like, the way the camera angles were and the way, and the way I didn't know he did it all himself. Maybe that's why it was, but it just felt, it just felt a lot realer than a lot of the other movies that I've seen around then. And you could tell where a lot of like other horror movies kind of took their cue from them. You know what I mean? Other gore movies. There was some stuff in there that was the way they killed people in that movie was pretty <laughs> inventive. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, we talk about the saw movies and so-called torture porn and gore porn films of the late nineties, early two thousands. And still, if they stick around today, those would not be a thing if it wasn't for Herschel Gordon Lewis breaking those boundaries back in the 60s. Right. I mean, this is 1964. This is the year that the Beatles came to America. So when you think about all this kind of like clean cut fun that you're hearing in the pop music scene, here is this guy making these underground horror and torture and slasher movies before there was even an audience for it, it kind of blows my mind. Yeah, it was it was crazy. It I didn't I when I did research on it, I realized that 1964, like you really see how far. Like again, I'm going to repeat myself, but like you really see how far ahead of its time it was. You know what I yeah. mean? Because I don't think there was anything like that out there. And the fact that one of the stars was a Playboy model. Yeah. <laughs> um, that all that is like that's stuff that's regularly done today. You know what I mean? It's like. Sometimes you have Playboy models in horror movies or whatever, but I really feel like it was, again, it was just a, it was a crazy movie. And the, just the stuff they did was just like, it was almost like they didn't even like what you're watching is them going through it the first time. You know what I mean? It doesn't sound like they did a lot of rehearsing around it and it's, yeah. it makes it really good. It makes it really realistic. And just the, the way that things are shot, the way things are covered almost like an Ed Wood style picture. You can tell that there's things where it's like, okay, they only did one take of this. So it cuts yeah. to like background actors or cuts to maybe like a second setup that maybe didn't catch the shot the exact same way, but they edit in there anyway and just kind of patch and glue all these different scenes together. But that's what makes this so much fun. That's what adds the campiness because it doesn't take itself seriously. 
It's very right. tongue in cheek. And it's for the drive-in. It's for the grindhouse, you know? It's not meant to go up for the Academy Awards for special effects or storytelling by any means. Now, here's sure. here's something I think is kind of interesting. When we watch this film, it's called 2000 Maniacs. And when you look at the cover of the poster, and Herschel Gordon-Lewis was very clever with his poster work. He kept them very simple. He mostly did them in black and white or like a gray scale with lots of red to enhance the fact that this was going to be a bloody, gory picture. Like, did you look at any of the posters from his other films? Yeah, I did. I checked out, I checked out back, checked out a lot of his other stuff, but I checked, I can't remember the titles or anything, but this one always, the the poster for this one, you could tell kind of what you were getting into almost with it. Mm-hmm. The mayor, they had, I think on the poster, they had the mayor, the, the mayor. guy who plays the mayor or whatever. Mayor Buckman. Um, yeah. And there's a, there's a couple of things about him that were really good in this movie, but uh, you could tell like the way his face is all evil in the poster mm-hmm. that he's at that bloodless point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's kind of one of the things I wanted to talk about when we get into it. But yeah, we'll get there for yeah, sure. Was, I really liked everything about this movie. Like I, <laughs> I thought there's a part of me that thought it was funny. Like I was laughing. There was points I was laughing. Like the gore stuff made me laugh. I don't know why, but it just made me laugh. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now the genre of the film. So to kind of plot point this out a little bit, it takes place in this Georgia town called Pleasant Valley. And they are celebrating their centennial of the Civil War. But we really don't know too much of what the centennial represents. They kind of keep it a mystery until the end. Which, when we get there, it's really fascinating to me. Because for a tongue-in-cheek, campy, gore-fest film, there's actually a little kind of well-written mysticism at the end when we get to that point. Yeah, that ending was really good. I really liked the ending. Yeah, right? And what makes this film... I think uh, a very standout moment in gore cinema is, in my opinion, this creates the whole hillbilly redneck genre of horror films. Things that we would see eventually with like Deliverance or Southern Comfort or a wrong turn where you've got rednecks and hillbillies out in the woods, out in the swamps, out in the marshes. And there, I'm not going to lie, there is kind of like a little bit of a, I'd say discriminatory sense of you know oh all rednecks are are lower class citizens all hillbillies are uneducated and kind of savage i think this is the film that kind of starts painting that picture but it does it very tongue-in-cheek it's not really coming out and saying this is how southern people are and i think that's part of the joke right yeah yeah that's 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 what makes it that's what makes it a little more interesting right as you see as you see they have a different variety of of like they have the two guys that are like that are like typical kind of hillbilly guys right yeah and then you have different characters like you have the good looking guy that's like that tries to seduce the lady and that, that tries to seduce the lady he's like the, and honey you have the other lady <laughs> yeah 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 so there's a lot of variety and I, I think you're right it's like it doesn't do the stereotypical like a couple characters in the film like and those guys were funny if you ask me I, yeah those guys I are those great. guys were were so entertaining. I think those guys, yeah. again, when we talk about the influences of films made back before 1970, you see characters like this in future movies. They are kind of like the yeah. building blocks of these sinister goofballs. My mind immediately goes to like the two crazy guys in the Outback in the movie Razorback or the two goofy henchmen in the Super Mario Brothers movie. Like You see these 
these henchmen in these films and you can kind of go back to seeing these two goofy yet savage guys. Like they really kind of paint that picture for films to come. For sure. They do a lot of stuff for in this movie for films to come. Like you can see like almost you can see to the point where like uh, some of uh, the, the hills have eyes kind of yeah. came, came from it. You know what I mean? Like you could see a lot of stuff. Like I don't know if it was on purpose or whatever, but a lot of like horror movies, you can see where they got a lot of influence from this movie. And like the whole idea of like you have this small town that's very proud of being Southern. They have their Confederate flags all over the place. But to start the film off, one of my favorite introductory theme songs to any film, you've got the trio of bluegrass pickers singing The South Will Rise Again. There's a story you should know from a hundred years ago and a hundred years we've waited now to tell. Now the Yankees come along and they'll listen to this song and they'll quake in fear to hear this rebel yell. And they'll quake in fear to hear this rebel yell. Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again. Yeah, yeah that was the great, that was a really great intro. <laughs> And they play it throughout the movie. Like this, this, this group of musicians are almost kind of like this Greek chorus when there are scene transitions or you go from like act one to act two and the vibe changes. You've got these guys coming on singing either the South will rise again or some other Southern bluegrass tune. And it really kind of like lifts you out of the dark gore and torture that is spread throughout the movie, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it makes it it makes it a little lighthearted. They do it again. I think it's either after the first the first kill or the second one. I can't remember, but everybody's kind of standing around in that one scene where they're just kind of standing around after, and the hillbilly guys are like, "Play some music. We have to do this. Like yeah. this is part of what we have to do. Play some music. Be happy." And they go back into that song. It's a party. It's a centennial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was it was really great. I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself on that one. No, but, no. I mean, uh, you're you're you bring up an interesting point of like people standing around. There is a lot of just people just standing around in this film. I think a lot of it yeah. because it's so low budget. They shot it in a little town in Florida, and most of the people in the movie were residents. They are not actors. They are just people that Herschel Gordon Lewis just put in groups. So there was filler there, and I don't. I don't think he gave them much direction other than just like, okay, stand there and look scared or look happy or look excited. And really they just stand there and just look everywhere about where they're supposed to be looking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could tell. <laughs> so like I said, we were starting off this centennial party in this town of Pleasant Valley and six strangers take a wrong turn into this town. So again, you are creating this wrong turn genre that we were going to see in horror movies for generations to come you got rufus you got rufus and lester putting a detour sign that are leading them into this town which when you get there the town is beautiful it's it looks like this really nice southern town the streets are clean they have banners they've got flags they've got balloons it is a party but instantly there's something off about this town because everyone is happy but everyone yeah. also is a little bit sinister, especially the youth. Yeah, yeah you could t- and you could tell right away when they were, when like the people start pulling into the town, like 
Like they're like, oh, you're the guest of honor, and they're like, the guest of honor of what? Of and they're what? like, oh, it's our centennial. <laughs> Your centennial. You're of the what? guest of honor. Never mind that. So, you're the guest of honor. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, and they could tell when they pull in that there's something off about the town. You know what I mean? They're like, okay, it's really nice, but these people are kind of, kind of weird. <laughs> You all clear out of here, Billy, here? <laughs> I'm a Buckman, mayor this here town. A great little town of Pleasant Valley. You all traveling? Why ask, Mr. Buckman? Why the way to Florida? You all on vacation? No, wait, 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 wait. Just what's going on here anyway? Are we under arrest or something? I mean, what the hell's going on here? And where are we anyway? <laughs> you just keep your pants on, boy. You're not under arrest. You're right smack dab in the middle of Pleasant Valley. Isn't he, folks? Yeah! I'll tell you this much, though. We've been waiting on you. Ain't that right, folks? And they're kind of freaked out at, at first, but then they're like, oh, okay, I guess we're the guest of honor, and they kind of just go with it. <laughs> well, and everything is, like, too good to be true. Like, the women are too pretty. The, the men are too handsome. They're getting right. too much attention. And when it comes to, like, the group, you've got, like, these two sets of couples and then two strangers. And the first thing right. they try to do is split these couples up, testing their 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 fidelity to each other, sending in like that guy you were talking about who's the honeypot, and then also sending right. the sexiest girl in town to show one of the guys around. That's right. Again, you know, we we've seen this in in earlier films, I'm sure, but another trope that we see in horror films from years after this was made is you want to get the group divided because everyone can be picked off easier one by one. And they weren't doing that in horror movies in 19... The way that they, they did that, particularly, like you said, like they weren't doing that in 1964 in horror movies. Like It was like... It set up, it set up a lot of things for later on, in, later on in other movies, I believe. And especially, but, uh, yeah, if they did do it in earlier films, they were doing it very innocently because they had production codes and production standards. Since this was not going to be played in a mainstream theater, Herschel Gordon Lewis is like, oh, I'm going to make it a seduction. I'm going to, I mean, they actually bribe one guy with food, <laughs> you know, like they chew yeah, different yeah. ways to get people out of, out of their yeah, group. Yeah. And just the way they off of, a, they, 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 they off them in the movie is just hilarious. Like I said earlier, it's like some of the stunts they pull to off people is hilarious. So let's talk about some of these deaths. So this group of people, they come into town, Mayor Buckman, who is the main guy, who is my favorite character in the movie. He's very, jo oh, mine too. he's very jovial. He also, he almost reminds me of like a Colonel Sanders kind of character, like very, yeah. very likable, very big and friendly. And I remember seeing this for the first time years ago, not knowing what it was all about. I did not place him to be a bad guy, which makes him an excellent bad guy. Because Rufus and Lester, they're sinister and goofy. You're like, oh, those are obviously the bad guys. You think we ought to go out and get us a couple of special guests of honor? Lester, we got a six, just right number. You all know the rules of the celebration. Got a six Yankees, and boy, we're gonna have a centennial celebration to make old Robert E. Lee himself proud. Yeah, but we could slip back and, and get us some more and kind of have our own private centennial. Hot dog! Yes, <laughs> aren't you the sneaky one? Maybe we could get us a couple of uh, private guests. Now, boys, you know all the rules of the centennial. 
Sure wouldn't look good for the general chairman and the program chairman. But then when right. you learn that they take directions from this guy, it all kind of comes into place. Like, oh, this dude is sinister. And what makes him even more sinister is that he's likable. Yeah, yeah. That was like, that was the crazy part. And there was another another characteristic he had when, when they, in the film, where it took me a minute to catch on where his voice changes when they're about to do, when they're about to like do a bloodlust or when they're about to kill somebody or somebody tries to get away or something like that. I, I don't know if it's just his voice or all the characters' voices. I couldn't tell, but his voice dramatically changes. Yes. So there are five deaths in this film. There are six characters. There are five deaths. Four of those characters that die are part of this group of six. The first official body count, though, of this film is a little kitty cat. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. one of my other favorite characters in this film is little Billy. He's this little boy, Billy, yeah. little blonde boy in overalls, just running around, being all goofy, kind of being like Dennis the Menace. And that is yeah. one of the first thing that we are introduced to that something isn't right in this film is that little Billy has a tiny little noose that he puts around a cat's neck and then right off camera frame, you see him strangle the cat with this thing and he's just <laughs> yeah. laughing giddily. Um, yeah, that's the first official death of this film. And it really kind of puts you in this in this interesting emotional state because, like I said, everyone is so friendly, but obviously there's something sinister. And this is just the beginning of the violence that is to come in this film. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just starts it off, and I can't remember. Is it the the first couple that goes is the married couple, right? Yeah, and uh, they have Honeypot seduce the lady, right? Yeah. Take her out to, or is that a different one? No, that's him. I'm glad we're calling him Honeypot. <laughs> yeah, that's I don't remember him by any other name. <laughs> Neither like, do I. I never say honeypot. his name. Yeah, and yeah. He, he is like the best looking guy in the town, so it only makes sense that he is the one that kind of like can get her. To, es- to escort the, the female away from her partner. And that is the very first death. And here's the, something I can say about Herschel Gordon Lewis's filming of these scenes. He has a very particular style in all of his movies. He made a film called Wizard of Gore, which was kind of about the Grand Guignol Theater that was back in Paris, where they would have like these staged deaths and torture scenes, and people would come and watch them because it was entertaining. And the question always was, was it real or was it fake? That was like the, the draw to the theater. So whenever right. he would do these, these murder scenes, these gore scenes, he would frame them all in one shot if possible because he didn't want to take away from the realisticness that he was going for it. So if there was a cutaway, it was after the initial violence. So the first thing that we see is the character B who was drawn away by Honeypot taken into the office of the mayor, thrown down on the desk, and Rufus and Lester chop her arm off with an axe. And the way they yeah. do it, they do it in one one master shot and then cut to the one arm shot. being torn away with Kill Bill-style blood just shooting out of it, which for 1964, yeah. man, I'm sure people lost their lunch over that one. I'm pretty sure. Doesn't he take her to like a pond before that? Or is yeah. that a different one where he cuts her, where he cuts her hand, he cuts her like her hand. And they catch her. Like just automatically they're like kissing and all of a sudden he just cuts her hand. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, the bloodlust. Yeah. That first one was, and that's like the setup for the next, like, and like, like I said, man, the way they, they off people in this movie is just so, 
it's it's kind of humorous and then like all the blood and stuff you're just like wow that's really like there wasn't gore back in 1965 like that <laughs> 64 sorry. no no and then it kind of takes us into like the cannibal holocaust territory because later on that evening they're having like a barbecue in honor of yeah. these guests of the centennial and yeah her arm is on a spit and they're roasting it over an open flame <laughs> yeah with like what a hundred townspeople waiting to get like a taste of it, I didn't really understand <laughs> what's the deal with that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really get it either. And they're just like they're trying to feed the next victim, I believe. The, yes, the arm. Yeah, that was that was weird. There, but they're all they were all into it. <laughs> so the next death, I think, is actually pretty fun too, where we see our character Tom being killed by horses tearing him limb from limb with ropes tied to his arms and legs. Right. That was the second one. I thought the wheelbarrow was the second one. Oh, no, 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 no. The, the, the barrel is like the next one. This one is fun because I, I feel like I've, no one had ever seen anything done like this on screen before. I remember there was right. like maybe some like old Roman gladiator films where they like, they suggest that this was happening to someone where like you show the guy being either drawn and quartered or pulled apart by horses, but it's never on frame. It's always like referred to. And this time they just show it. And yes, it is a very rudimentary special effect, but man, is it effective, especially when you're already put in the mood of what this film is, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's totally effective. And the way they do it is just, man, again, it's like one take literally it's like, boom, it's done. And Again, like the blood spatter and the gore with it is just so good. And it's just like, again, I keep kind of repeating myself, but it, it, that just, it just made me chuckle for some reason. Like I just thought it was just like, that was the first scene. And I was like, oh my God, that's so, it's so good. But it's also so funny. And I don't know if I should be laughing or I should be horrified, but it's like, it was just, it made me laugh. And it, I, I really enjoyed it. It makes me wonder, like, you and I have seen many a horror film, many a slasher film. So of the generations ahead of us, like maybe one or two generations, starting with like maybe the mid to late 70s when we really started seeing slasher films, especially in the 80s when they got really kind of over the, do- over the top and ridiculous in a fun way. Maybe we are desensitized to this kind of violence where now when we see earlier examples of it that are done in a more crude and rudimentary form, we find it funny. We find it kind of silly because we are so used to seeing realism now in films with its depiction of violence and gore. Do you think that might be a thing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's like, yeah, you could, you could kind of see like how, yeah, I can, I agree. I, I, I could really see in some of the later horror movies, how it's like, um, there's more there's more of a realistic death in some movies and this one was just so um it just seems so elementary kind of the way yeah. they did it you know what i mean and it's just that's that's what made it funny to me and i get i, I get your point and i agree with you it makes me really want to know what people thought about it when they first saw it either in a grindhouse theater or in a drive-in i mean imagine this being at a drive-in and you've got like little Johnny and Susie in the back seat and you're watching this and all of a sudden guys getting torn limb from limb by horses in a time where this <laughs> stuff just crazy. wasn't played. Like, yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine like, 
I was talking to I was talking to a friend of mine about this movie who's older. He's like he was around in 1964, and he was explaining that you just didn't go and see those. You had to go to like underground drive-ins to go see those kinds of movies. Like you had to figure out where it was playing, um, and it was usually like not in your town. Like you had to go on a little drive to go see it. Um, he didn't remember this one, but he said a lot of those movies like that were like you know, you had to figure out where they were playing because they weren't advertised. Yeah. If they were advertised, it wasn't like in the regular newspaper, the city newspaper. It would have been like in that little side newspaper, you know, like yeah. the county one where they would have like personal ads and things like that. Yeah, I can only Yeah, and it was. Uh, and he said it was like word of mouth too. Like, oh, you got to go see this. You got to go see this. And like he was a kid, he was in high school in 1964 or so. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's how that's, you know, and uh, I was surprised he didn't remember this one, but he brought up some other ones that I never heard of. And he was like, he was like, that's kind of what he w- he was into comic books and horror movies, basically, when he was a kid. <laughs> well, I like, I remember hearing my mom speaking about Jaws the first time that she saw it. She was like fresh out of high school and she lived in Pasadena. She was a surfer girl. And after seeing Jaws for the first time, never having seen a creature attack film so realistic and so violent as that one, she didn't go back in the ocean for years. Like that movie scared people out of going into the ocean for years. Jaws was a freaking Jaws was a freaking one. I remember seeing that as a little kid. What year did that come out again? I think it was 76, 75 or so. It was a year before Star Wars. Yeah, I was. I remember being a really little kid, and I remember seeing it as a. I was. I so I was born in seventy one, so I was maybe five or six years old when I saw it. Oh my! But I remember it. Yeah, I remember it because my brother and my cousin. We were in Florida, and my brother and my cousin, I believe, we snuck in. We snuck in to see it, and uh, it freaked me out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I'm I didn't to- go to the ocean for years. Yeah, that was a common thing. And, you know, for me, you know, I was born in 81. There were a lot of horror films, but the one that really kind of rang true to my generation was Blair Witch Project. People didn't want to go camping anymore. People didn't want to go in the woods because they were afraid they were going to get taken by some crazy witch that you never see in the film. You know, again, like you never, you know, I have a funny story about that. Yeah. Uh, We'll get back to, I guess we'll get back to the movie real quick. But uh, so for my work, I have, I have clients that I take care of. Um, I do in-home care with disabled adults. Um, And one of my clients is a big horror movie fanatic. And I asked him if he had ever seen Blair Witch. And he said, he was like, yeah, I saw it, but it just, it didn't do anything for me. Like I didn't, didn't do anything for me. Like I didn't, I, he saw it on Netflix cause mm-hmm. it's been on Netflix recently. And he was like, yeah, I just, it seems like fake. And I'm like, you never saw it in the theater when they did all the hype. Like it was like a true, they made it, made you think that it was a true documentary about it. And he's like, no. And I'm like, Oh, that's what made Blair Witch so good. Yeah. Was when it came out, people were like, man, it's a, it's a real documentary. And again, it was like word of mouth. Like yeah, they found like, this footage. Yeah, they found this footage and they made it into a movie. It's crazy. You know what I mean? And I remember seeing it in the theater thinking that it was like a, a real thing. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. So and then I, I see it now. I see it now and I'm like, eh, you could kind of tell. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's kind of goofy now. But the, like I said, yeah. each generation has like a film that kind of like scares them out of something. So I don't yeah. know. I, I, I don't know enough about what people's reactions were to this film if it made them afraid of like going to the south now i know for a fact like because i've talked to my dad about it deliverance scared him from that part of the country because at that time he was 
traveling country with a circus. He was a flying trapeze artist, and he saw deliver oh, wow. he saw deliverance, and he was like, "Oh, we're going, we're going to Kentucky, we're going to Mississippi. I, I don't <laughs> want to go down there." Like that movie scared him. So I wonder if there was a little bit, a little bit of that to this this particular story as well. Yeah, okay. I wonder about that too. So to get back to that, the next death, the next event, which I think was probably my favorite is my favorite female character in this film, Betsy. So she's like the female honeypot of this town. Yeah. She's like Marianne from Gilligan's Island if she was like really slutty and really forward. You know, she's got like that kind of homegirl look about her, but she's very aggressive and very forward. And she leads this guy, David, kind of like by a leash around the town. He is all about her. And they go to this festivity called the Barrel Roll. They're like, okay, <laughs> David, it's time for the Barrel Roll. They toss, this is my favorite one, too. They toss this dude in a barrel. <laughs> and as he's in there, Mayor Buckman and the other guys are driving nails into the barrel and then roll him down the hill. Now, you be still. You might get hurt now. Don't move now. We're going to stop. So as he's rolling down the hill, he is getting skewered by these nails. Yeah. I don't know how Herschel Gordon Lewis thought of that one, but it is one of the most brilliant deaths I've ever seen in a gore film ever. <laughs> yeah, it was so, it was, I man, again, yeah, I thought it was really good. That's why it's my favorite scene. Like, I had never seen that either. <laughs> I'd never seen somebody die that way in a movie. Right? A, and that's the first time I noticed a voice change in the mayor. Yeah, he gets scene. aggressive on that one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It almost yeah. reminds me of something like Jackass would do, but like instead of nails, it'd be dildos or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but that was also my favorite one. That one, The Rock, the rock one where The Rock comes down on the lady, the next one. Yeah, it's the next that one. That was good too. And so here's the thing yeah. is like up to that point, the deaths have been gruesome, but they've been fast and they've been almost kind of whimsical, you know, like getting your mm. arm chopped off with an ax, getting drawn and quartered or pulled apart by horses, and then the barrel roll. Then this death, which is like the last real death of the film, this is the one that actually kind of shook me emotionally and physically because it takes all the fun energy out of the previous deaths and it turns really serious because it feels like this is something that could really happen and it takes its time with how they do it and the buildup. And this is the one killing scene in the film that really kind of shakes me. They get this girl, Beverly, to do the old teetering rock. And they have her in between these two planks with this rock on this, this pedestal that's, like, like you said, 20, 30 feet high. And as they yeah. throw rocks at this target, like a, like a pie-in-the-face kind of contest, the rock falls, and it falls, and it smashes her, of course. And it's just there's something about the brutality, because now you are seeing the whole town involved, where all the other ones, it was yeah. like usually Rufus and Lester 
doing all this dirty work with people kind of just watching. But now you've got the whole yeah. town involved, which just added to like this weird, sinister vibe that this last death had. That one was brutal. <laughs> that was, again, like they're starting to escalate. You know what I mean? The bloodlust is starting to kick in. They're starting to escalate a little bit. And uh, there's the deaths are starting to get more and more violent. <laughs> there's something interesting about the crowd's response to this death, too, where like when we saw them at the barbecue, they all, like I said, they kind of just stand there looking around, not really sure how to act. I kind of got some insight into that towards the end. But with this one, this one's a little bit more creepy because everyone's like watching and nodding and laughing and approval. It, there's just like yeah. a different vibe about how the townsfolk are reacting to this last death, which I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's like a writing error because there still are technically two survivors. Who knows if, if you're their first time watching this film, if they are going to make it out of this town or if they are going to get caught. But for being like the final death of the film, that one really did shake me up a little bit. We have the last two survivors, uh, Terry and Tom. The teacher and the, the random people put together. Yeah, the random people like put together. he was together. just a hitchhiker. And I think that, again, that was written for like the emotional investment of the characters, like where it's going to hurt you more when the couples are taken out and the yeah. so-called randos who really didn't have any connections to people are the ones that get away. And this is where little Billy comes back into play because I was wanting to see more Billy. And then after yeah. <laughs> after we get to like this last act, maybe we saw too much Billy. What y'all want, Yankees? Look, uh, w w what's your name? Billy. Well, uh, Billy, uh, you like candy? Sure do. Got any? Why, yes. I got a whole big box for you and the rest of the kids. But uh, I'd like to give it to you first... Uh, so you can take all you want before the rest of the other kids get it. Gimme, they ain't getting any. Well, uh, before we do that, uh, we gotta know where it is. Uh, and it's in our car. You know where our car is? Sure do. Down at Lister's Garage. Fixing to taking it apart after Centennial's yeah. over. Yeah, Billy was, uh, Billy was, uh, Billy helped him, helped him out quite a bit. I don't think he really wanted to. That teacher, the teacher character was pretty smart. I mean, he figured out, he, he started figuring out pretty quick what was going on. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, let me go make a phone call. Only when he goes and makes a phone call, he doesn't know that he's actually talking to the mayor. Right. Yeah. And again, like we, there's some questions that get asked towards the end as we get to that part. They, they convince little Billy to get the keys to the car so they can get away while the townsfolk are chasing after them. I love the fact that there is like this, slow as molasses car chase down the road as the hillbillies lester and rufus are in their truck chasing after these guys and they drop billy off to throw him out of the car and then make their way to town and get away <laughs> and that's like the first yeah. that's like the first kind of like instance of like what this film actually is going to be towards the end and we'll give a spoiler alert right now if you haven't seen the film and you don't want to be spoiled to the film's pretty cool ending go back and watch the film yeah and that ending was surprising yeah that ending was so surprised that like totally made the movie so much better to me like just the way they did that ending because you see him escape there's a couple things going on when they escape and they're just walking there's that guy following them and i can't remember who the guy was that was following but he gets he gets like stuck in the swamp and he just like oh it's just kind of random you know what i mean yeah as they get away from the guides in the truck, the guys feel like they can't pass a certain point in the road. Like they stop. 
throughout the movie, they kept bringing it up. They only had like what two days to, to yeah. do the centennial. Was it like two or three days? I can't remember. Yeah, because like that was the first thing when you first watch this film. It's like, okay, well, they they have these people in the town. What is the importance of having it done within this certain time? You know, and they don't yeah. really explain it, and that's part of the magic of the of the ending. So Terry and Tom make their way back to town, and they're trying to convince the sheriff of what just happened, which reminds me a lot of this film, uh, Race with the Devil. Groups of two couples are escaping the satanic cult, and they go and talk to the sheriff, and the sheriff acts like he's never heard about anything like this. So that kind of gets the vibes. Oh, I've seen that. that. I've actually seen that movie. Yeah. But so you kind of think like, oh, is this sheriff a part of this plot? Does this sheriff have some connection? Yeah, that's what to I was town? thinking. Like something, something was going to happen where he brings them back to the town, and they finish. Like, like I was like, okay, this is kind of predictable ending where they're going to bring him back to the town. The sheriff is going to bring him back to the town, and, and like every other horror movie, yeah, and they're going to get killed. They're not going to escape. But to my surprise, you know. So the sheriff brings. I don't want to give it away yet, but yeah. So so the sheriff brings them back to the town. And they can't find the road, the road that led them to this place to begin with. And as they yeah, are it's all looking, filled with grass, it's all filled with grass, but their tire tracks are still there. So like, what's going on? Yeah. I swear we turned down this road to Pleasant Valley. And that's where the sheriff drops the big twist, the M. Night Shyamalan twist, if you will. Here comes the spoiler, Not folks. Crazy, Mister, I didn't say you was crazy. Nothing like that. It's just that I think it's mighty peculiar. Well, what's peculiar? Well, to tell you the truth, they do tell a story around here. The reason I just didn't send you on your way in your first place. The reason I come back here with you is on account of that story. What story? Well, this town, uh, Pleasant Valley. There used to be a town by that name, all right. Used to be? Yeah, there used to be a town by that name, all right. Back during the war between the states, bunch of Yankee soldiers came through and well as the story goes they they wiped out the whole town they ain't been a town by that name I reckon in a hundred years so as they kind of process this information we see the town starting to fold up like you said Rufus yeah. and Lester are like all right guys our hundred year celebration is over See you in the next hundred years. They go get their buddy out of the swamp, who's like been down there for yeah. who knows how long, and he just like casually walks out. <laughs> casually walks out. Yeah, I guess it's going back. So they're all ghosts. This town is a ghost. This town, this this crowd of people are these bloodthirsty ghosts who just want vengeance on Northerners for what happened during the Civil War. And as we kind of close in towards the end of the movie. We go to the plaque of the city that says what happened here a hundred years ago. Excellent ending, man. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so made that movie. Like I said, I thought it was going to be the sheriff bringing him back to town and they were going to die. And that whole twist at the end made it so like it was so entertaining. I love that. Like, you don't see yeah. horror movies. You don't see horror movies like that with a twist like that these days. No, you don't. And I love that they close the film on our two crazy dudes, Rufus and Lester, talking about well, what's it going to be like in 2065 when we come back and have our another centennial party? He's like, we'll probably have guys in rocket ships. Rocket ships? What's a rocket ship? Like, it's just kind of a cute, yeah. funny way to kind of end that. But but yeah, a great kind of mystical twist ending for what was up until this point, a kind of campy, gory, fun slash fest. 
Yeah, I mean, and that made, that's like I said that that's what made the movie so good to me. Like that's what I would actually like. I recommended to a couple friends of mine. I, I was like, you got to watch this all the way through. One of my buddies watched it, and he was like, you know, I thought it was just kind of cheesy all the way up until everybody that has watched it that I've recommended to they uh-huh. said the same thing. Like I thought it was cheesy all the way up until the end. Like that ending made the whole movie. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, yeah, it was really good. And the way it was really well done because they didn't give anything away throughout the movie. You know what I mean? They didn't give any kind of they there was little hints that they maybe they weren't from this universe. Like I said before, like the mayor's voice changing when they got aggressive when they were starting to get aggression mm-hmm. aggressive, sorry. Um like you can kind of tell, well, okay, but it took me a minute to to kind of figure out that that's what's going on. Like I didn't really get it at first, and then like I think it was like the the wheelbarrow murder, mm-hmm. or the yeah, the wheelbarrow murder is where I really saw his voice change, and he got all red in the face, and then I was like, ah, that's what's going on. Like that, that's how I figured out that he was like that sinister. He was really sinister, but uh, yeah, just that ending, man, that made the whole movie. So like I said, it's such an influential film that I feel like a lot of people probably haven't seen. It, it yeah. bringing like this redneck terror to cinema, bringing this kind of grindhouse camp and gore like Herschel Gordon Lewis was known for. And that I feel like people like Eli Roth and Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright, you know, filmmakers that I love and respect today, you see little bits of DNA from films like this in their, in their work today. Especially if you watch, uh, what was I? What was the one I was thinking? It was Planet Terror out of the Grindhouse when mm-hmm. they did Grindhouse. Mm-hmm. Planet Terror reminds me, and Planet Terror was not my favorite out of those two movies, but uh, Planet Terror reminds me a lot of this movie for some reason. I, I like think just, a, just yeah. I, maybe because of the gore in it, but you could kind of really see the influence in it. Because I watched Planet, I watched Planet Gore, I watched Planet Terror, excuse me, um, a couple days after I watched this. But I also think um, when you watch Rob Zombie films, when you watch things like House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's yeah. Rejects, you see a lot of influence as well. You know, I think Sid Haig's performance as Captain Spaulding is very similar to Mayor Buckman in a way. You know, this kind of like happy, yeah. jovial guy who's also a sinister madman. So I, I love seeing influences and references in films like this that back then... This was just cast aside as grindhouse genre nonsense. And now right. boutique Blu-ray labels are charging you 40 bucks for it with all the extras and all the features and all the history behind it because people like you and me are now fascinated by films like this and, and how they become influential to future filmmakers. I kind of, like I said, I saw it when I, I, like I really saw it. I could see what you're talking about with the Rob Zombie stuff. I think if I remember right, I read an article somewhere with Rob Zombie where he was talking about Devils, either Devils Rejects or, or a Thousand Corpses. One of his first movies in the in the in the in the interview, I think he mentions this movie. I can't remember where I read it, but I remember him saying early Grindhouse movies had a real influence on his filmmaking, mm-hmm. and I remember him saying something like two thousand, this movie right here, and um, there was another one, and I can't remember the name of the other one off the top of my head, but because I remember I heard of this movie before I'd never watched it, but I, and I couldn't remember where, and I can't remember the interview he was talking about it in, but uh, yeah, man, you could totally see it in those two movies in devil's rejects and in uh, 
House of a Thousand Corpses, especially that, especially in House of a Thousand Corpses, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there was a, a remake of this film, which I think is a fantastic little B-movie. It's called 2001 Maniacs, and it kind of follows the same plot structure, but instead of random strangers, it's a group of college kids, because it was made in the early 2000s when you had these college kid slasher movies like Wrong Turn and stuff like that. Right. And the guy that plays Mayor Buckman in that one is none other than Robert England, Freddy Krueger himself, just delivering hey, told me about some that. of the best one-liners in any horror film. If you like this movie, go out and find 2001 Maniacs. It is just a campy, gory treat. And Billy himself returns to hang kitty cats. <laughs> Nice. I got to I got to actually watch that. You told me about it and I haven't watched it yet. I have to watch that one. So that's 2000 Maniacs, folks. Uh Shane, what do you got coming up on Shane and I show? Uh let's see. We uh we just finished our new episode just came out a couple days ago. Uh I don't know when this gets released, but we just released uh, another episode called Bees Like Sweat. Uh we're going to be recording some more in a couple of weeks and that's kind of how we do our thing. We do, we try to do bi-weekly. Yeah. Sometimes we miss the bi-weekly. Um, it's an ish. So we always keep that in mind because sometimes life stuff happens, but uh, yeah, man, we uh, just keep doing our thing, you know, trying to make people laugh. Yeah. You guys are fun. <laughs> like you said in the last time you are like the Seinfeld of podcasts, like just a show about nothing, that is just entertaining as hell. I'm always a uh, always happy to see new episodes pop up, and, and that's the that's like that's the, sorry that's like the thing that we we've getting more and more accustomed to is we're or more and more used to as far as Max, my co-host, and I go is uh, you know, we just kind of this last episode, Beast Like Sweat, we just kind of turned on the mics and just started talking. I I didn't have anything in mind what we were going to talk about, and sometimes those make for our funniest episodes is when we just start recording and we just kind of riff and uh i really i really miss doing that the last few episodes we have done have been topic focused and and uh i think our best stuff comes when we just kind of just riff on each riff with each other well you can find shane and i show pretty much anywhere podcasts can be found i've got links to their show in the cult worthy partners page of my website thecultworthy.com Please follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd. And Shane, any special announcements or places that people can find you? Uh, no, we're on the usual sites. Uh, you can find us pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. And um, better, the best communication form for us is Twitter. Twitter's been seemed to be uh, the best place for people to interact with us. And it's really, we, I've been trying to interact a lot more with people on there. So, Absolutely, man. Well, it's a pleasure as always to talk to you. And we will do this again soon. Yeah, man. I look forward to it. I always like talking talking these, these movies with you. It's always great. All right. Have a great week, everybody. See you next time. There's a story you should know from a hundred years ago. And a hundred years we've waited now to tell. Now the Yankees come along and they'll listen to this song and they'll wake in fear to hear this rebel yell. And they'll wake in fear to hear this rebel yell.